Hello and welcome to another episode of For the Love of Sports. We're doing a little ad hoc today. We're just trying to put stuff together as we can. I have my guest here, David Cerrotti. He is the founder of Front Porch Athletics. He's the founder of Imagine Productions and the Sports Broadcasting Camp. He is formerly of the Big East, Seton Hall, CN8, St. Peter's College, and Coldwell Bankers. And he's the author of The Hitman. David, how you doing today, man? Good, Michael. How are you doing? It's a good day to be alive. It's a good day to be alive. As I said, I'm in a new setting. Uh, everything's a little weird and wacky today, but we uh, we do what we can. You being a sports uh, broadcasting guy, maybe you can give me some tips and pointers after we're finished here, but I think we're going to have a fun conversation. So, <laughs> David, uh, very excited to get to talk to you about all these things. I mean, a lot of college athletics, especially with everything that's going on. We didn't plan this. I guess it's just uh, good timing, let's call it. So we'll, we'll get to dive into that a little bit in, uh, pretty soon, but... The first question I have for everybody on the For the Love of Sports podcast is, why do you love sports so much? That's a great question. I'm sure I've never really thought of it. What drives us to love sports? Um, Why do some people like music? Why do some people like art? I think it's in us in some way. Um, For me, I wanted to play. I was small. I was shy as a little kid. Um, I guess I could dribble. I could shoot a little bit. Um, being a five-four little skinny kid in high school, went to practice for freshman tryouts uh, first day, and my friend was supposed to cut to the basket. Instead, he faded out on the drill, so I threw it to where he should have gone. I got yelled at by the coach. You're why are you such a stupid Italian kid? I'm Jewish. I'm not Italian. I didn't take that real well because I didn't like getting yelled at. So the next day I had a cold and didn't go to practice. Mm -hmm. So the end of my basketball career, but then I became a manager in high school and got to go to practice every day. It was fun. I was with the team, with my friends, became a manager at Syracuse basketball way, way back in the day. And sports was always part of my life. But I think more for me, it's the pageantry of sports, not the games. That's what I've really come to love over the years. Everything around it, right? Like it, it used to just be, you know, hey, there's a game on, um, you know, back in the day, let's call it. Now it's everything, as you said, pageantry. That's an awesome word, but it's such a it's such an event. All of these games. I mean, you think about a college football, which we'll get to discuss a little bit later, or even the NFL. You know, I'm a Giants fan. I get 16 Giants games a year, soon to be 17. And that's it most likely because they're not going to make the playoffs, but that is it. So I am just going to get those 16 games. I know exactly what I'm doing, where I'm going to be and how I'm going to do it. And it's the, it's such an event now. I mean, baseball is my favorite sport, so it's a little different there, but there's still that feeling. There's still that envy. There's still all of the opportunities that surround these games that are a lot of fun. And you, you it's a sense of belonging. I think when you think of it in that way, sports brings us together. And especially what I do with, with the mid-major programs, the, the opportunity that you have at a mid-major is to allow your fan base to get to know your players, to get to know the people involved, and you can bring more and more into that community. But that's the joy of it. Most people are looking for the opportunity for affordable entertainment, which a game provides, but they also want that sense of belonging. And You know, but then you think of the Giants and it's almost become too much of an event that every second is music, videos, Mm -hmm. 
and you don't even get to enjoy it because it's in a way is it almost overproduced. I can see that. I completely understand. And I always do. I've always had a soft spot for those smaller schools, the mid-majors. You really only hear that term in basketball and football. It's group of five. Uh, You know why we call them different things. It is what it is. But it's always very interesting to me to see and and hear everything that goes around. And I'm a big Giants fan, so I'll take those three hours or three and a half hours every Sunday. Don't get me wrong. I'm cool with the production, but I know exactly what you're talking about. And that that was the point that I was going to bring up is that it's that community aspect. It's being around everybody else. It's being able to walk into a bar when we used to be able to walk into bars and say, hey, you're a Giants fan too. How do you feel about Saquon Barkley? And then we all just kind of have a love affair over Saquon Barkley. It's that opportunity there. So with that, was was working in sports, um, and as you said, you know, kind of getting into the athletic side and getting into the basketball manager side, was that always something you wanted to do? Or was that just kind of the path you went down because – you got yelled at one day and you had a cold the next and kind of just ended up there. No, it was, I never thought I'd be a manager. I didn't even know what it was. And in fact, my best, one of my best friends from today, uh, Tony McIntosh was an all American at Fordham. Um, He told me after I didn't go to practice like a week later, Hey, there's a thing called a manager. I don't know what it is, but maybe you could ask. And so I asked and the coach said, sure. And I stayed with it and I just, I loved it. And then when I got into Syracuse, prior to that, I was writing letters. We didn't have email back then, writing letters to Bernie Fine, who was an assistant coach at Syracuse. And he wrote back and said, when you get to campus, come, come in. And I went and he said, I could be a manager at Syracuse, my first day on campus or second day, whatever it was, I walked in and there were these players who I had just seen in the NIT finals, Red Bruin, Eric Sanford, Leo Routens were right there. And Eric actually drove me back to my dorm. And here I was this small, shy, naive kid now with these quote-unquote celebrities in my mind, and I guess at Syracuse they are celebrities. And from that, my life evolved. I got to meet announcers. I didn't know what I was doing, but I was essentially playing PR person every day. Um, I was with the coaches. I would stay for the visiting team practices, and I would meet Gary Williams. I'd meet PJ Carlissimo. I met all of these amazing people and was a part of it from the inside. Then I learned when CBS or ESPN came and they parked their truck outside, I could go out the day before the game and talk to them and see the truck. And I didn't know what I was doing, but I was learning um, as I went. And that's the way you got to do it, man. I mean, there's just so many things that people don't understand about the the industry and the world of sports. That is exactly why I wanted to have you on because the 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 ebbs, the flows, the paths, the forks in the road, they all are going to come up. It just depends on what you do with them. A lot of people might not have went into the truck or at least even tried to go into the truck because they don't know if they're allowed to or not. I am of the belief of you know, ask for forgiveness, not permission. Uh, but, you know, it's just one of those things where just understanding your space and what you do. And as you said, you were kind of playing PR person without even understanding or knowing that you're playing PR person. So I think that that part's the best. And 
I guess, what was it like to learn something like public relations on the job now understanding, you know, how much you've been able to do in your career, but what is it like just kind of learning and, and just kind of starting to figure these things out, you know, when you're, when you're at Syracuse, when you're at the big East, when you're in Seton hall, like, what is it like? Like, that's just such a crazy way of learning how to do a job. Well, I, in high school, I started writing for our local papers and I would cover football um, games and not basketball because I was working every day, but I tried to write. And when, you know, it's funny when I got to Syracuse, I wanted to be a sports reporter and I got into Newhouse, which is the famous journalism school. And then what I saw is how my friends were impacted when Dave Elfin was the guy, he was at the post standard. If he wrote anything negative about them, how it hurt them. I said, wait, I don't want to do that. I want to write, once I learned what a feature story was, I wanted to write the feature stories. So when, you know, I had my school side and then I had my in the bubble, what we call it now, where I'm with the team. And when Billy Packer came or the ESPN people came and they would sit and they would, I go up and say hello, and they would say, Hey, is Pearl around? Can we talk to him? And I, I didn't know what I was doing. And I'd say, Sure. And I would tell them stories, and I was smart enough to tell them the right stories, but I would give them insight. And again, it was soft. I knew enough, not, but I was playing PR person without knowing what PR was. And it was only until the end of my senior year where I started to wonder what would, not the end of my, but my senior year, oh my God, you're leaving, you got to get a job. And I started to look at internships in public relations and Coach Beheim called the Milwaukee Bucks for me. Coach Beheim talked to um, Mr. Gavitt, Dave Gavitt, who I had met the people at the Big East and they gave me an internship in public relations for a year in Providence. And my direct boss was uh, um, Linda Bruno, who became one of the first female commissioners of a Division I conference. Um, Michael Trankese was there, uh, Dave Gavitt, Tommy McElroy, Peter Frechette. It was six people in the office, and I was there. And Mr. Gavitt taught me so many lessons. Um, one of them was, I want you always prepared in your work because you never know when we're going to go somewhere. When I'm going to want you to go. One day came in and said, are you ahead? I said, yes, it good. Heads or tails, you drive. I said, where are we going? To the Hall of Fame. I have a meeting. So I think I drove that way. He drove back. During that same day, Michael, uh, he asked me a question in the meeting. I'm there with these really important people. And he asked me a question. I said, oh, I'm just an intern. You don't want to know. We got in the car and he yelled at me. I asked you a question for a reason. I value your opinion. You're a smart guy. You're not just an intern. And that was a great lesson. Yeah, I, I would say, thankfully, he didn't read me out in the meeting. I think that could have made it a little bit worse. No, but He was the best. That's awesome. That is awesome. Man. And yeah, just as you said, you know, naming naming some of those names, I'm not going to lie. I don't know all of them off the top of my head, but a lot of them do sparks some curiosity like i've heard them before linda bruno especially i do you know again don't exactly remember 
you know, what she's done, but I've heard that name to the point of understanding, Hey, something's there. And, and being able to be in that room, as you said, that office is six people and you, there's a lot to learn from that group of people, especially running the Big East conference. And this is when the Big East conference was the Big East conference, right? This it isn't was the beginning. It you was, know, they it were was, three years old. It was really when it was starting to get into becoming the Big East, which everyone knows, especially for college basketball. You know, there is there's something about Big East specifically when it comes to college basketball. It's still great. They still have their college basketball. It's still college basketball conference now. It's not the same. It's it's a little different, but it's back in the day was when it was, you know, the the real deal. So I think it's awesome that you had that opportunity to learn there. And I guess what is it? What is it about PR that you once you started to learn and started to do this and started to enjoy it? that you decided to make this your career? Like, what is it about public relations that you love so much? Storytelling. That, that's really what it is. And I, I didn't know I was doing it all the way back then. It's become a term, storytelling. And everybody's got to do storytelling because of the importance today of social media and content. But back then, we only had a few different outlets. It wasn't like today. And not everybody understood that. You had a lot of people in sports that wanted to just do the statistics, wanted to be next, just be in it, wanted to be the right-hand person for a coach. Um, I viewed it as my job was storytelling. And I did that very early on at Seton Hall after the Big East. I was fortunate enough to... Um, walk into Larry Keating, our athletic director, and he said, he hired me. Um, and I said, so what do I do? He said, go with the soccer team today. And my boss, John Paquette, who's still at the Big East, said, John, what am I doing? He said, go cover the game, call in the scores. Here's your list. And I then started to do it. I knew nothing about soccer. Um, that year, Seton Hall goes from one of the worst programs in the country to Ed Kelly um, came in, brought um, in some great players and we go to seventh in the country. And I'm telling stories about the players. I'm telling reporters that the Irish kids are basically teaching um, international studies to all of us on the bus. We're learning about Ireland. We're learning about their view of America. And I got to see this up close, then women's basketball. I viewed it as I'm working with, this is my program. And I would tell stories. Then baseball, I get thrust into this thing. It was a juggernaut my first year um, in Seton Hall where we had Craig Biggio, Mo Vaughn, John Valentin, uh, Kevin Morton played in the major leagues. And the best guy on the team was Martise Robinson, who hit 529, led the country in hitting. And I'm doing all of this. We created the Hitmen. One of the players, a guy named John Brogan, created We're the Hitmen. So it got to the point where, where we went to the NSA tournament and we landed. The players came running to me when we got off the plane and said, there's like three cameras and reporters are waiting for us. What do we do? And they grabbed my bag and said, run, David, you're in charge of this. So here I had Craig and Mo and Val and the coach. They're all doing interviews. 
I didn't know at the time when I talked to them about what to say and how to say it, I was really doing PR. And that it was amazing. I learned on the fly. I, I love that. That is such an awesome story. Um, I mean, college athletics is, is there's something special about it. But when you can start and you can hit 529 in a season, that just makes it laughable. And I love that, too, about college <laughs> athletics. Don't get me wrong. I think that part is fantastic. And you bring up the hitmen, as, as uh, I did say in the opening, that is your book. You did write a book about those four gentlemen. And I, if I'm not mistaken, their path from high school to college to then the major leagues and kind of how they all did it a little differently, but they all yeah. made it to where they needed to get to. So um, I definitely do want to talk about that a little bit later, but I do want to um, okay. continue down the, the track of PR. Cause I think that's very important and understanding how, how long were you in just for reference? How long were you in college athletics for in, in the, in the PR space? About half my career. So I was uh big East Seton hall, Northeast conference as assistant. Mm-hmm for six years then i became the um first pr person for a startup net tv network called cna the comcast network with incredible people there and we covered college sports so mm-hmm. i got to see it from the tv side and because it was a startup you could do everything and i got to learn so much then from there, I had a little bit of time at a PR or a promotions agency. Then I went to St. Peter's College as the head of public affairs on the, you know, almost the front office of the mm-hmm. athletics. Yeah. And the rest of my career was in corporate America. I love it. Corporate America. I do. Uh, we do need to get to that side for uh, for a second. I mean, some people say corporate America. Some people say sellout, but you have to do what you have to do, man. Of course, I'm kidding. Don't worry. But what um, I guess what was the reasoning? Like you were having so much fun. You're you were doing a, a, a lot of work and you were loving all of it outside of probably not getting paid as much as you thought you should be getting paid. Uh, what were the reasonings to eventually leave uh, college athletics when you did? I think like many, many people that are in college sports, you get to a point where you say, do I want to keep doing this? To move up in college sports, you've got to be willing to actually move. And it's very different. You know, think of New Jersey. If you're at a certain school, how do you move up? You've got Seton Hall and Rutgers. You've got the MAC here. You've got the Northeast Conference. And then you've got the NJAC schools. Um, so where do you go? You, you're going to have to move up. So at the time I started dating my eventual wife, I was interested in a position at the MAC, which was in Toledo, and it was going to be a $4,000 jump. And my wife kind of said, aren't there other things you can do in sports? But it's one of the things that I found in sports that we didn't know what else was out there. And it gets scary because you hear about this outside world and what, how do your skills translate? And it's still something that people don't know about. And once I left, I missed it desperately. But then I would realize, wait, I get weekends off. Isn't that, that's kind of cool. You actually get vacation. That's kind of cool. You don't have to go to games if you don't want to. It's kind of cool. So you get, I got to enjoy sports even more for what, for the pageantry of it and to enjoy 
the people in it, not so much the game. And I think that's really important for everyone listening and watching to understand that just because you want to do something in sports doesn't mean you have to actually work for a team or a league or, you know, a sports specific company. There is a lot of sports touches so many different industries and so many different companies and people in all these different ways that you really do. Again, as you were saying, like you kind of, did you want to move to Toledo? I'm not trying to take shots at Toledo, but I'm not trying to move to Toledo either. I can't I really got great hot dogs at, um, um, forgetting the restaurant, but see, there's Maybe all of our hot dog fans out there, apples, I believe. It's go good. check out go check out Toledo if you want that hot dog. But I feel like that's a pit stop. That's not really a place you want to live. Um, I I'm I like hot dogs as much as the next guy. Well, but. even if you're at you go to the Mac, then you've got to move up. And for people in sports, let's face it, the coaches are getting paid at the football, basketball, and now baseball levels are making money. But they're about it the same way but we're not we're not mm. that same salary but you got to kind of do it yeah yeah you, you got to do what you got to do and you really do have to kind of get to where you want to get to so as you said you did not take that job in Toledo you did not take the job with the Mac you eventually do go corporate so you work for Coldwell Bankers you eventually become let me have it down here vice president of North American PR so you're not yeah. messing around and and so what was what was that like and and how quickly did were you able to really start to integrate and see the integration of sports into this banking company, this real estate, well, real estate, yeah, yeah, real yeah. Estate company, yeah. What, like um, how how did you see that integration and and still be able to keep that love of sports for for what you were doing um, with your new job? Well, the guy who helped get me the job was the former sports information person at Princeton, Mark Panis. And he had me interview with the people at Cobalt Banker. Um, I didn't know anything about real estate except I owned a house. And it worked out. And I eventually was leading global communications for one of the most noted brands in an industry. I think everybody knows Cobalt Banker. And it was amazing to see big business. And the only thing that was different in corporate America versus a college was the planning, the goal setting, the execution, and the measurements. Just. Then over time, I saw the integration was very different because what started to happen in the mid early 2000s where when social media started to blossom corporations saw that it was impossible even for them with large budgets to break through if your advertising group was doing one thing your communications pr another thing your platform people doing another thing and your social people doing another thing so you had to integrate and then you had to partner with other groups in order to really penetrate and you look at college sports and i would call my friends and say are you guys doing off-site retreats for two days where you're locked in a meeting and you get these big sticky notes and you're like no are you setting goals for your for your external no are you doing this no and i started to realize oh my god 
college sports is the same. It's a business. And even at a mid-major level, it's a pretty big size, quote unquote, company. You got a big staff. You got a lot of people. You got student athletes. You're running a company. But they didn't come from this more regimented, more process-oriented side. And I realized, wow, if I could help the schools do this, they would really be able to, to grow and mature and offer their employees greater opportunities to succeed. I love it. I think it's really important that people do understand, obviously, college sports is a business. I don't really care who you're talking to. If they say it's not, then they're very, they just do not know because college sports brings a lot of money uh, involved. And that's why well, let's talk about that, Michael, because yep. one of the I'm going to believe it's one of the misnomers that college sports exist. If number one for the for the students that when they come to a school. If they're good enough to participate in a varsity sport, it's that mind body spirit. Mm-hmm. Also, the central location for the rah-rah side of what an organization or a university is. But what has happened over time is the schools and the athletic departments have, in a way, forgotten they're there to promote the school. They're there to essentially promote student enrollment and retention. That's the that's what college sports is. It's the front porch. As my company, Front Porch Athletics, it's what Dean Smith said. It may not be the most important part of the house, but it's the first one we, we see. And it's a big piece of what I believe is if the schools can attract the community, donors, students to get involved, the, the entire infrastructure of a school to participate in games, to do whatever you buy tickets, buy t-shirts, buy this and that, and participate, that's a huge win. Then at the same time, make sure your student athletes have a great experience. But then what about their classmates? You're part of the culture of a university, but we've kind of lost it a little bit that we think it's about winning and losing too much. And I just don't believe it is. I think, I think they go hand in hand though. You definitely, you're gonna, so I went to Rutgers here in New Jersey, the state university of loved it, had an absolute blast. My first year I was there, we made it to, I want to say about 15th in the nation. Um, we played Louisville in the, essentially, which was the last Big East championship game. It wasn't really the championship game, but whoever won, won the championship. So we lost that game in that first year. It was incredible. And the stadiums were always packed and everyone was always having a good time. And we were always doing what we needed to do. And it was absolutely fantastic. The second year, we were bad. We were pretty darn bad. And the whole luster of all of it, everything that happened the season before, stadiums were half empty. We were starting to lose games to Cincinnati. Like it it was just a bad look and nobody was happy. And that entire aspect of it pretty much washed away. Now, obviously, Rutgers is not a preeminent college football team, even though it is the birthplace of college football. Let's not forget. It's just one of those things that it's it's very I do think the winning does 
help the culture, right? A, a culture of winning. What does that mean? It means you win game. You win games. That's all it means. Well, people want important. that. But the winning, when you work on the external affairs side, which would be your PR promotions, your advertising, your digital, your social, all of those aspects, nothing I do is going to put points on the board. I may be the support mechanism that allows us to recruit. I may be able to impact the enjoyment at the game when the play is not going on, yes. But for the most part, that's the other side to it. But when you're at a lower level, when you're at a mid-major, they're going to have their core group of fans that will support it, that feel a part of it. Your job is to grow that. Your job is very different than at a Rutgers or, or the Alabama's level, Alabama level. And I think too often the mid-majors are following the basically professional college sports model. And that's not what it is. You can't do it. You I, can't compete at that level. You don't have the money. You don't have the budget and you don't have the quote unquote brand that takes years and thousands and millions of dollars to build that brand. And that is very true. I completely agree with you there. When talking about the mid-majors, it, it is a lot different. Um, I would consider Rutgers a little closer to a mid-major than an no, Alabama. Rutgers, no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Hey, I was just wearing my Rutgers t-shirt. So yeah, I love it. Keanu, keep keep chopping. Yeah, yeah. Let's go. Let's go. Yeah. I think we might actually have a team one of these uh, one of these years coming up, which I'm excited about. But you are right about that. With with the the mid majors, it's a lot more difficult. But you have seen that starting to come around a little bit more, right? We have the you know the Sun Belt, you know, with uh, the rebrand, you know, quote unquote, to the Fun Belt because the games are enjoyable and people want to watch it. We have Maction on Tuesday nights, right? And so so some of these mid-majors are really starting to do their thing a little bit. And even the Ivy League, which we'll get to in a second, but, you know, they've even started to run, you know, have their games on Wednesdays. There is no college football on Wednesdays, so. Here's one of the things you have to remember that back when I was in corporate America, that term self-publishing became normal for us. And one of the things that, excuse me, we realized in that, Cobalt Banker in real estate, why were we having the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal being the only outlet for real estate information? We could be that content provider. So I have a good friend, he's now the chief marketing officer of Cobalt Banker, David Marine, who David was blogging before blogging was a thing. And I used to laugh, well, what is what's what is this? But he understood it at an early time and he would write tips for buyers and sellers so when you do self-publishing you can tell your own story and today the mid-majors because of ESPN plus flow sports and the other opportunities they can televise their games to their audience the mistake that I believe they're making is they're treating that broadcast like a game it's not it should be treated as if it's a new marketing channel for them. And it's funny that when I talk with David and I said, David, if I gave you a game in two and a half hours, the only thing you could not touch were the 40 minutes of a basketball game. That's it. Action you can't touch. Everything else, go crazy. His view of how to use that as a marketing vehicle, dramatically different 
than what the schools would do because he would be viewing it as bring somebody into that marketing funnel, drive them in, you have them. So they've already self-selected, I'm in. What do we want them to do? Do we want them to buy tickets to the next game? Do we want them to donate? Do we want them to support the school or come to school? There's all these different things. When you look at college basketball, it mirrors the college acceptance process. It starts in November where the kids are finishing up their, um, their applications. Then the kids are taking tours of school still. They're looking where do they want to go during the basketball season. They are then making their decisions, most of them, towards the end of basketball. So if I'm a marketing person, why am I not using my college basketball games to show prospective students how great this place is? That's the kind of thinking that a corporate America person or a pure business person looks at it that way rather than I'm a sports person. I like that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, when you when you when you consider it, you know, I've never really considered games like that, you know, in, instead of just like, hey, here's here's a game, watch it. It's no, here's here's a culture you can be included into. Here's here's a community that wants you to be a part of it. I think that is one of the most important things and you can utilize those things. So let's let's go to Front Porch Athletics for a second. So you started Front Porch. You left corporate America around 2016. You started Front Porch Athletics, and you started Imagine Productions. I think Imagine Productions was first. What what drove you to want to start your own businesses, seeing that you have all this information from your college uh, co- collegiate history and from this understanding that the colleges are not doing anything that you're doing in corporate America, even though they are essentially corporate businesses? One of the downsides of corporate America is layoffs and downsizing because they are very tied into budgets um, at many companies obviously fortune 500 level they're tied into um, quarterly earnings so my position after 13 years was down so i was down not down eliminated so it was a shock it hurt um but i had a very good friend of mine tell me you're at a certain age Um, You can go back and try and get another corporate job, but you're likely going to get whacked after that because your salary is too high. And that's what happens. And it's, it happens. So he also said to me, see if you can consult. I don't think you have it in you. I don't know if you're a chase the business kind of guy. And one day his name's Andreas Panay. He's an owner of a company called TKI. He said to me, you want to try this? I said, yeah, he's Friday afternoon. I'm hanging up. I'll talk to you Monday morning when your website's built. I'd never built a website. I didn't know what to do. But I worked all weekend and created a website for Imagine Productions. Um, Luckily, I had Imagine Productions because of my sports broadcasting camp. Um, The name of our wedding song was Whatever You Can Imagine by Luther Vandross. So that's why it's called Imagine Productions. And the concept was to consult back then with real estate companies to help them market themselves better. And along the way, it it has grown. But um, at the same time, I wanted to do the sports thing. 
um, was searching for a name with a friend of mine, Dave Popkin, who is in it with me. And I really love the name Front Porch Athletics. And I went and looked, does anybody have this name? No. It's now, I've got the trademark application. I got the whole thing. Got the quote on the website, frontporchathletics.com. And it's really my goal, my hope, my passion is always college sports. And if I could marry the skills that I learned in college sports, along with what I learned outside college sports, bring it to help athletic directors grow their quote unquote revenue stream, maintain a strong effort across campus with student enrollment and retention, look at the opportunities they have today with, as I said, their own broadcasts, true digital advertising, storytelling and creating sellable moments. So my hope is what I bring to the table helps them grow their revenue through their, their whether they're using um, one of the, the big giants like a Van Wagner or the others um, to do their selling, they can create programs. And with that, I guess let's let's talk about you know. So again, you're you're really focusing on the mid majors as we've pretty much discussed this entire time. With that, you know, trying to help them with their marketing efforts. I know I read a little bit about streaming and digital and and you know th- these opportunities, which is something that you learned along the way while in your corporate life. With with football, you know, obviously. So we had the Ivy League already cancel their season. They said no, thank you. Uh, we've had. I think the Big Ten, as of recording this on July 10th, the Big Ten and I think the ACC and the Pac-12 are about to follow suit, which means everyone's going to have to do it because I don't think um, everybody's, you know, two of the five conferences aren't going to. But it looks like we're going to be playing only conference schedules this year. It doesn't look like too many people are going to be allowed in the stadiums, if any at all. There's not too many great optics. That's a fun word to use around what's happening. I mean, I think at one point, like 30-something members of the LSU Tigers tested positive for COVID. A bunch of people at Clemson. Ohio State's not even releasing the numbers, which I don't know is a good thing or a bad thing. But considering, again, those are the bigger schools. Now with these mid-majors, one of the ways that they make money so that they can fund all of these sports is by going, you know, Appalachian state goes to Michigan wins one time. Um, but every other time they get absolutely throttled. They get paid a million bucks. Everyone says, thank you. And they can now fund a lot of their school, um, athletic departments. Now you are in this weird position where none of that is really going to happen. And you're focusing on these smaller conferences like the mid majors, how, how are you, I don't want to say spin it, because that always sounds like you're taking a negative into a positive, but like, what are you doing right now? And what are the conversations you're having, considering all of this only happened a few days ago? What are you, like, how is your brain moving? How are those cogs kind of turning to make sure that you're still able to do all the things that you need to do for these smaller schools and conferences that really, you know, when you take a million, million and a half bucks out of the equation, it really starts to hamper what they can do. Well, you take a lot of the mid-majors and you realize because there was no NCAA tournament this year, they're losing three to four hundred, maybe thousand dollars or more that comes from that through their conference to the school. So what's fascinating to me is obviously COVID-19 is unlike anything any of us have ever experienced. The difference is in the corporate America world. Remember what I said, Michael, every quarter? 
So I was at in corporate America during the recession and it was literally every quarter people lost their jobs every quarter. And even now um, during not right now with COVID, but even during good times, you're constantly adjusting your budget. You're constantly eliminating programs because they're not working or they're not returning an investment. Colleges and college athletics have never really gone through anything like this. Yeah, their budget may get slashed by 10%, but they were always recession-proof, always. And yes, you are seeing some of the smaller colleges struggle with consolidation as population declines and there's not enough students out there to attract and the big boys keep going and, and the state schools dominate. Yes, that's happening. But this is a first time that many are going through it. And I've been fascinated with when you read the D1 ticker and you'll see this school athletic director trimmed his or her salary by 3% or the coaches took a 4% cut. In corporate America, it's 25% and they've been furloughed. Programs are eliminated. So how does it, this is just brand new but it's also the opportunity for schools, even if you're not playing, what is your goal? Your goal is to bring people together. Your goal should be letting your student athletes tell the story of their school, even today, when they get back on campus, we want them to be the champions of the school. I did a, a, a post where I gave schools a, a um, uh, basically a, a script where their prominent coach could go out and talk to the students. Hey, we're with you. We want you back on campus. We miss you. Hang tough, do your homework, do your stuff, work hard, we'll be together. I don't know how many of them did it. So while I'm not the be on all, be all and end all, what I'm hearing is this is very hard for them. They may have to cut sports. They may have to fire people, lay them, lay them off, not fire them. They've never had to do it really. It's hard. And I guess I'm a little hardened to it because I went through it every three months for, for a while. It, yeah. I mean, it's, as we were saying before, like these are, these are corporations, essentially, these are companies, each of these schools, each of these teams, each of these leagues is a company, especially mm -hmm. when it comes to football, right? We all know yeah. that the football is the biggest driver and it's just, um, I guess it's, I don't know if I want to say the biggest driver for a few. Mm -hmm. and that is what we all have to understand. Football is a, should be at outside of what I'm going to call the professional college sports. And you could yell at me all you want about the name, but that's what it is. And to these other schools, it's an activity for five to six times during the fall where the community can come together outside of the student athletes, outside of the games. Culturally, that's what it is. And you think about a freshman in college, where is their opportunity to be a part of a communal activity, mm -hmm. the football game, no matter if it's at the smallest level to the Mammoth level to the Rutgers level, that's what it is. And what all of this pandemic might be doing 
is it might be showing the schools what sports is really for and how we can, how we miss it and where it fits in the culture of our school. But at the same time, it's going to teach athletic directors and athletic departments where, what their job really is, that they're not in professional sports. They're in the school culture. They're marketing the school, their product and what they're delivering games and the incredible student athletes, the incredible young people that they are. And I think it's, it's a great way to look at it, right? It's a great way to see it because again, I, when I watch college football, I'm not going to sit here and lie to you. I don't watch too much Monmouth, right? I I don't even watch too much Rutgers and I went there, Uh, but it's definitely, so I always kind of look at it from, and I like your terminology, the professional college football. Here's the thought, Michael, if you live down in the shore, Mm -hmm and you went to Monmouth, or you're in a lot of course. Yeah, no, 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 no. I, I understand you, that point. I you understand meet that. Kevin Callahan, you meet the coaches, you meet the players, and you fall in love with them, you're in. And once you're in, what do I want you to do? And quite honestly, there are young people who were five, six years old when King Rice at Monmouth had it going with, with his great teams. They went to games. Where do they want to go to school now that they're 13, 14, 15? Mm-hmm. Mom, if football's done well, if you live down there, if you've been aware of it, the Mammoth athletic department, just using them, for example, they do a great job in just about everything in their video productions. It's big league. So you're teaching people, mom, it's a good place. I want to go there. And when you go there, you're brought into a culture of I'm going to go to games. It's part of my, my life. Absolutely. No. And I think that that, that's the most important part. I mean, you can pretty much point to, I I can't remember what this, the statistics are. You might know them, but after a team wins, uh, you know, a national championship, it's spiked up, but it's really, you know, why did I want to go, you know, so I grew up, my grandfather was a giant Penn state fan. Um, and so growing up, I loved Penn State. I wanted to go to Penn State. I did everything I could to get into Penn State. I decided not to go to Penn State for a couple of reasons here or there. We don't need to get too deep into that. But it then like there was no like I went to a few games growing up and the atmosphere and being there is it is unlike anything else. It was amazing. And that was the feeling I had growing up since I was six, seven years old was wanting this one thing. And the only reason was because of football. The only reason was because of college sports. It wasn't because of anything else, not because this is such a great school. And, it has this same thing and you're up in Albany and Siena is No, there. exactly. A hundred percent. I understand. Yeah. At, um, in the arena in Albany, you may have that same affinity mm-hmm. Siena. And my belief is that many of us have forgotten that's what it's for. And our job in the athletic department is to do that, to bring people in. And then what are the goals? Is it going to be increased revenue? Well, how do we do it? And if the AD says we need 20, 20% more revenue, each department has to figure out what they do to increase revenue. And it's one of the things that was fascinating to me in the going back to the corporate America thing 
CEO says this is what we need to do. Chief marketing officer says this is how marketing will impact on that goal. Department, advertising, PR, website, social is figuring out promotions. What's their role? They come together with their plan. They debate, they fight, they scream at each other. It's really fun. You come up with a master plan. Doesn't happen in external mm -hmm. affairs, even at the big league level. That I know they're not doing it, but even more importantly, at the mid-major level is a huge opportunity for them to do it and use their resources wisely, both in budget, time, and energy. 100%. And that's why they need you, David. That's exactly uh, why uh, they need you. A, so, you can tell how much I love it. I can, I can. I think it's great. And I think we agree on everything here. I think it is it is fantastic what these these colleges are capable of and how they're able to really do what they need to do in terms of, you know, as you said, again, I love the reasoning why you named your company front porch, because it's true. And, you know, Dean Smith said it. So I'm a big Duke fan, but I respect the hell out of what Dean Smith did, of course, but it's just always great to kind of hear the reasoning for it. And it's true. That's what people are going to see first. That mm -hmm. is absolutely what people are going to see first. And then that's going to drive their decision-making because they're attached emotionally to something already. Um, and I think that's the most important part. So um, we're, we're starting to come up on time a little bit. There's a couple more things I do want to talk about. So you have started the sports broadcasting camp. Um, and it was funny when you and I exchanged uh, text messages, uh, we have the same area code 908. I, I saw the Somerset Patriots in that sports broadcasting camp. So my uncle Dave Merrick works for the uh, Somerset Patriots. I've been to yeah. countless number of Somerset Patriots games. I see that you have people that work in all these different places. So I guess talk to me a little bit. I mean, we spoke, a, we kind of touched upon it earlier about the broadcasting aspect of sports and, and you wanting to be a reporter, obviously not the same thing, but what, what made you want to start a broadcasting camp here in central New Jersey? It was about 20-something years ago, um, way back in the day, Bill Raftery and Jerry Eisenberg ran a camp at Montclair State for sports journalism. And it ran its course, I guess, and I knew about it, and I always kind of said, wow, that's awesome. And I started to realize when I was at the Comcast Network, um, CNA, that in this day and age, we're expecting young people to know what they want to do when they're 10 years old, 12, 13 years old. So sports was growing at the time, and you were starting to see new networks pop up. And I realized that people wanted to be in broadcasting, but they didn't know what it was. So I had the idea. I was friendly with Bruce Beck um, from NBC and Iron Eagle with the Nets and CBS. I approached them with the idea and we started a camp and it was at Montclair state at the Yogi Berra museum. It was one of Yogi's favorite things to do every year. He came, he spoke to the kids, he watched them do their stuff. And it was amazing. And over time, Bruce um, and Ian decided um, it was time after 15 years together. So we agreed, all of us together, we brought in Tim Capstraw and Chris Carino, and Capper is, is still with us. He has he does color for the Nets and has not missed a game in 18 years, and Dave Popkin. So now this year, we have moved it virtual, um, and we really believe we can give the kids a unique opportunity. We cut the price because 
We didn't have a lot of the, the costs that we incur when we're at Montclair State in their brand new, incredible um, School of Communications that rivals Syracuse with its, um, with its equipment. It's unbelievable how great it is. Um, so the kids come in, they learn how to be broadcasters from the research to how to interview athletes and coaches, even when a coach is a, or a jerk after a game, how you deal with it, um, how you do a show like part of the interruption, how you do play by play. So all of it, we teach and learn and do. And it's really fun. And we've got incredible guest speakers. So we've got Ian, we've got um, Gary Cohen. Gary Cohen, um, who does play-by-play with Pop at Seton Hall and the Mets, obviously. Kenny Albert, um, Jared Greenberg with the NBA and TNT. Um, His show was Shaq. Jared was our first counselor way back when he was a student at Hofstra. So he's going to speak. We even have um, producers from CBS Sports teaching the kids what goes on in the background. And, of course, one of the, the great ones is Sarah Kustak, who is trailblazing on that female side. And what's beautiful about Sarah is, especially for the girls, she's a role model. And she works with them. She spends extra time with them. She becomes their friend and their mentor. It's it's great. And there's still room um, in the camp. We go July 27th. Um, so just go to Sports Broadcasting Camp, if anybody wants to, .com and You'll see some great, great stuff that we do. But we have kids all over the place, Michael, and not not uh, making fun of you, but, man, they, they'd be doing this interview like you wouldn't believe. Hey, no, no, nothing wrong with that, man. I do this for fun. Maybe one day I can get paid to do it. I don't know if you can hear the thunder in the background, but it's starting no, it's to get a coming. It's coming. It's coming, man. But uh, oh, yeah, so I do this for fun. Maybe I, I would love to get paid to do it one day, but uh, no formal training. This is just kind of off the cuff. Know, they are unbelievable. But if you could, I'm always interested in speaking with anyone with the Mets. So Gary Cohen, maybe that's something we could talk about off air, though. Well, I, I won't put you too much on the spot there. Um, and then the the last thing I want to talk about, which you were speaking a little bit about it, the book that you wrote, The Hitman, with Craig Biggio, Mo Vaughn, John Valentin, and Martise Robinson. Again, 529 is just a ridiculous batting average. But where... Why? Like, at what point did you decide to write that book? Was this during your time with Coldwell? Was this kind of when you just see you were seeing it happen? And and you know where the idea come from? And and how involved were they in the process? It came from even that year. Martise told me that at one point I said I should write a book about you because you were seeing these stories right in front of you, like watching Craig, who's now in the Hall of Fame. He was a catcher, and in college baseball, the catcher will back up the throw to first. Craig would, guy hits a ground ball to shortstop, he'd actually beat the runner down to first base. It's hilarious. So you're watching that. You're watching Martise at 529. You're seeing Mo Vaughn hit balls over houses. And then it just, it was magical to be a part of it. And then to watch them go on to their careers was amazing. And when I got to St. Peter's, I said, I really want to do this. And I'll never forget Val said yes. Martise said yes. Mo said yes. And 
I met Craig at Shea Stadium and we're in the dugout talking. And I said, Craig, I really want to do the book. He said, you've been talking about it. Go do it. And I said, will you help me? Of course I'm going to help you. So the guys were great. Um, back then I would go to the library and do microfilm and print out. I've got mounds of articles about the guys um, all the way through. Research. I went to their hometowns. I saw where they played. I talked to their coaches, their families, and I really tried to do it right. And the guys were, you know, they let me do it. And, you know, they're all friends to this day. Um, I'm so proud of them, like to have a friend who's in the Baseball Hall of Fame. But you see, he's just correct. And it does like it's weird right? That he's an icon. He's just Craig to me. And Mo Vaughn with all the success that he has had in his business career and, and helping people with, with housing is huge. Val being, um, getting into different careers and Dana Brown, who's now with the Braves in front office work and Martise got to the major leagues as, as a scout and a front office guy. And he's now with the sheriff's department in in newark he's come back home it's a family and it was just so much fun and their connection to what they learned from the late mike shepherd senior um who taught us all so much his famous line never lose your hustle and i've never lost my hustle i'm always working i love it to this day it's instilled in them so the book was it came out in 2002 so what happens is if somebody buys it now, I think it becomes like the greatest riser on the bestseller list because it's probably down like three million right now. But then it jumps to two million with one sale, so it's kind of fun. Not that bad, then. Hey, I, I, if I, if uh, when my book comes out, I want it to be in the top two million. I think I wouldn't be too angry about that. But I'll make sure to have the link, and that will be in the show notes for anyone listening right, here. Yeah, everyone can go and buy it because I think that's pretty awesome. I'll make sure all your websites are in there as well on the social medias. But David, this was an absolute blast. David Sirotti, founder of Front Porch Athletics, Imagine Productions, and the Sports Broadcasting Camp. I really appreciate your time today, man. Thank you so much. Stay out of the rain and good luck with, with all your work with promoting Olympians and getting them the opportunities to, to get sponsored as well. That's really cool. We'll see what happens, man. Thank you so much, everybody. All right.